Would you please open your Bibles to that passage if you haven't already, Luke chapter 1. I have been so encouraged by our series through Genesis, and now we begin an Advent series, and I'm amazed at how we, in many ways, just pick up right where we left off in Genesis, because the Bible has consistent themes throughout, and some major consistent themes throughout, and one that we're seeing over and over again in Genesis, and we'll continue to see this morning through our Advent, is faith development. How do we grow in our faith? The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith is incredibly important and incredibly hard for us often to come by. And it's good to know that not just without faith it's impossible to please God, but that with God nothing is impossible. So when I look at my heart and how often it can be hard and cold and faithless and doubting and struggling and weary, it's good to know that God is able to fill my heart with faith in him so that I can live faithfully before him. That's, in some ways, what it's all about. That's why we gather like this, so that we catch a glimpse of who God is in Christ and trust him more. That's why we gather. That's why we've been singing, praying. That's why we send missionaries, because they believe those things and are helping others to believe them. That's why we give. That's why we serve. It's why we did food bank and do it every Friday and for Thanksgiving. It's because we want people to trust the God who has made us and saved us in Christ. And so it's good to know that God works in frail, fallen, struggling, weary people like us. And I feel all those things often. And I bet you do too. And so the story we just heard Jenny read is powerfully encouraging to me because you have very dark times, but you also have a God who's at work in this story. If you saw how the story began... You noticed, I hope, that it starts with this referent you get at the beginning of stories throughout the Bible of who's in charge. <laughs> who's in charge here? And we find it's, oh, Herod, king of Judea. That may not mean much to you, but to any Jew uh, who heard that name in this time, it would have sent chills up and down your spine. Herod. Herod. This is the Herod that is so threatened by the power the Messiah will have that it will undercut his power that he commands that all children to and under be murdered. So the Messiah will just be covered in that and won't threaten his power. That's who we're talking about. Herod was an evil man. And his evil didn't stop when it got to his family. In some ways, that's when it really kicked in. It was said that it's safer to be a pig of Herod's than a son of Herod's. That's how he was so cutthroat in that way. Uh, Abraham Eshman says this. He said, So long as he lived, no woman's honor was safe, no man's life was secure. This was a very dark time. Now realize that Herod's evil reign, he was the king of the Jewish people, the Israelites, but he was under the, the Caesar. He was under Roman oppression. So he really had two layers of evil and oppression. The blasphemous Roman thinking and oppression. And then within that system, Herod's reign, which was evil and wicked. It was horrific. And it's important to remember this. Reading history is so important. 
Because we do indeed live in dark times, and we have evil leaders in this world. I was just with a couple from Zimbabwe a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking to us about the 37-year reign of Mugabe, the king there. And I asked them a question that I will often ask people when I'm with people from other countries. I say, when people around your country make fun of your country, what do they make fun of? And they said, well, our king, our president, um, our president Mugabe, he's just been a horrible leader. And he's finally been taken out of power. But that's just contemporary. That's nothing compared. Uh, Mugabe and and leaders and Trump and whomever's in charge, no matter how bad they get, you can always find somebody at least just as bad, if not worse, in human history. Let's not lose perspective in the midst of acknowledging things are bad in many ways. In our nation, there's all sorts of things to be discouraged by. In our world, with immediate access to everything that happens as soon as it happens, we can become overwhelmed and even led to despair and hopelessness. But I want you to know this morning that despair is a lie from the pit of hell, and so let's just send it right back there and not believe it for a minute. We should be a hopeful people if we know the God who made everything and is guiding human history along in just the way he wants, even in the midst of things he hates, like sin and evil and oppression. Now add to these dark times politically, socially, religiously, add to this that at this time, it had been 400 years since God had given his people a word. God's people depend on his word, his powerful, clear word through the prophets and through his leaders. And here we have this massive time of silence where God withholds a clear, powerful, prophetic word. 400 years. Can you even relate to that? It's not just that you can't remember a time or your, ki- your, grand- your parents or grandparents can't remember time, or great-grandparents. To really get this, we need to think about this prophetic silence as we haven't heard a word from the Lord, God's people haven't, since 1617. <laughs> you imagine, it, there'd be all sorts of temptation to despair, thinking, man, God has left us. We haven't had an Elijah or a Jeremiah or an Obadiah or a Michael. We haven't had a word from the Lord since before anybody can remember. 1617 would be the equivalent for us, 400 years. So it's dark times. But don't despair in dark times, no matter how dark they get. Because dark times aren't too dark for God to move and work and bring light. And redemption. And so we never are the people discouraged or panicking or, or losing our minds or running away. And it's fascinating to study the history of God's people and all the ways we're tempted to react when times are dark and difficult. Even in the first century, you had several different ways that we can still see today. You had the Sadducees, for instance, this religious sect that actually became part of the system in a way that they were benefiting from it. So they were starting to like this and benefit from things the way they were. Not so sure they wanted them to change very much because their power and pocketbooks were benefiting from this. You had the Pharisees who were this resistant, but it's, it's sort of a passive resistance and a, a legalism and, a, and a, a separation from the world. Then you had the Essenes, this group that was really separate from the world. 
They, they were not of or in the world. They went off into the wilderness and separated themselves as much as they possibly could, forgetting that the biggest problem, their own hearts, they took with them. It's always interesting when I hear people talking about protecting their kids from the world. I don't usually say, but I want to say, well, who's going to protect them from you? Right, because you bring your sinful heart into the occasion, in, into the situation. So, so yeah, we we separate, we resist, we become part of the system. You had the zealots who were the the revolutionaries, the one who were going to take matters in their own hands and and stab a Roman soldier whenever they got a chance and bring about a violent rebellion against all of this. And you had all these possible ways of responding, and you still do today. You could see versions of all those ways of responding among the people of God today. But then you had actually the majority of the people, the Amharets, the people of the land, the quiet ones, the ones who went about their business, realizing that what needed to happen to solve all the darkness was nothing short of Emmanuel, God with us, as much as it can be good and right to invest in systems and, and resistance and processes and get involved. I'm not minimizing the helpfulness of that. But if at the core of it we think there will be any ultimate solutions, ultimate solutions, without God himself entering this darkness and bringing his light, if we think any shor anything short of Emmanuel, God with us will solve our problems, we are well too satisfied in ourselves and real don't realize that God's the one who saves. God's the one who makes all things well. And God is the one who will redeem and restore and bring us back to where we need to be. And so these people of the land is really the, the people we see in this story, Zechariah and Elizabeth. These people who bring a glimmer of light in the midst of the darkness. So as bad as things are, we get introduced to this elderly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Their names themselves are encouraging. Just their names. Zechariah's name in, in effect means God remembers or God remembers again, it emphasizes it. God remembers, God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't forgotten his people. God hasn't forgotten his promises. And Elizabeth's name, it means God's faithful, basically. God keeps his promises. Not only does he remember, he's faithful. You can count on him. And their names themselves pull us away from just our circumstances, no matter how dark they may be. And they put our gaze upon the God who is faithful and hasn't forgotten his people. Never believe the lie that God has forgotten you, even for a moment, or is neglecting you, or lacks wisdom or faithfulness to his promises. Don't make him make promises he never made. Like an easy road. No darkness. He's promised that in this life, until we get home to heaven, that there will be difficulty. There will be darkness all the, all the time. And we need to realize that. But in all these things, we can be more than conquerors when we trust the character of God. We don't look for all kinds of evidence to bring our assurance from the world. 
We look for evidence in who God is, who he says he is, and how he has worked on our behalf, especially in sending his son, which is what this story is really all about. God remembers and God is faithful. And then we find out that in these dark times, Zechariah, God remembers, and Elizabeth are both from priestly families. Priests are people who represent people before God. They're ministers. They're the ones in this mediatorial go-between role for God's people. So in their names, we're finding some hope. Some, some pointing to God here and who they, who they are named to be. <clears throat> and then we find out, not only are they both of a priestly family, but they are a godly elderly couple. We're told they are righteous. Verse 6. Before God, which is all that really matters. A court of law on a human level can find you unrighteous or guilty, but if God finds you righteous, that's all that matters. And they're walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is the New Testament. This is not the, just the legal system. This is the New Covenant as well. A righteousness is what is recognized in these people. A blamelessness. This means they had integrity. This means they obeyed God. This means they, they saw what God says and they did it. It's really simple, and they're held up for this. They obey God. They act in accordance with God's law, which is connected to love. Jesus said, after all, if you love me, you'll obey me. There's a simplicity to the Christian life. Don't miss it. They were righteous. They had integrity of heart, and they're blameless. This doesn't mean they're perfect. That awaits actually getting home to heaven, perfection. But what it does mean is that they were taking God and his word so seriously that although they still sinned and failed, they had a trajectory in their lives, a general direction of their lives, a posture of their lives of doing right. Not perfectly. Even Paul, as an old man at the end of his life, said, oh, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in the fellowship of his sufferings. He says, not that I've attained all this yet. But what do I do? I forget what lies behind and I press on to what lies before in the upward call for the prize in Christ Jesus. That's the goal of his life. Have, not having arrived, but moving in that direction. It is very important we make the fundamental connection between relationship with God and obedience to God. Between intimacy with God and walking with God and doing what he says. I, I'm astounded. When I meet Christians, which I seem to be doing more and more, people who say they're Christians and are living in clear rebellion against God's clear commands, and yet they talk about this wonderful intimacy they have with God. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. When you love God, you obey God. When you know God, you do what he says. Not perfectly, but as the general direction of your life, and increasingly so. And so these two are called righteous and blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. An astounding statement, this righteous couple before us. What else do we know about them? Well, if we just raced ahead to where we'll be in just a little bit in this series of Advent and saw 
Zacharias, when he's able to talk again, worship of God, we would see that he's quoting scripture all over the place. If we just went and looked at verses 67 through 59, where Zechariah gives this prophecy and this celebration of who his son becomes, John the Baptist, we will see that this man knows the Bible. He's immersed in the scriptures. And so Zechariah knows the Bible. So there's encouragement here. Here's this couple. They're righteous. They're, they're not one of the you know, main leaders. People probably didn't even know them at all. They were insignificant from a worldly standpoint, but they were powerfully significant and important from God's vantage point. He's the one who looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. So they were no doubt unimpressive on a surface level, but God had chosen to use this righteous, blameless, uh, scripture-saturated, and I'll add one more thing, prayerful. Did you hear the angel say to Zechariah, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. So as he's inside the temple about to offer this incense offering to God and the people are outside lifting their hands, praying to God, the prayerfulness of Zechariah is acknowledged. Your prayer has been heard, it says in verse 13. Your prayer has been heard. So this man is used by God because of his obedience to God. Because of his uh, scripture-determined life, his prayerfulness, put him in a place not of being saved by God. God's the one who saves. God's the one who chooses. But as an instrument, God uses. God can use wicked people. But this is different. This man is held up, as is his wife, as someone who is walking with the Lord in a way that he can be used. I don't want you to overcomplicate the Christian life. It's not awaiting the next book by Dallas Willard to figure out what it means to be a faithful Christian. It's not coming. Anyway, he's with Jesus. He's an author on spirituality. So uh, it, there's a simplicity to it. So we're prayerful. We, we, we become men and women of the word. We do what God says. It's not real complicated. It's not easy much of the time, but it's not complicated. So he's prayerful. I wonder what he's praying for. Do you see verse 13? The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. I wonder what prayer the angel's talking about. Now, we usually assume, and I did for a long time, that he, his prayer for a child. I'm not convinced Zechariah or Elizabeth were praying for that anymore. Um, they were quite elder. So to use this term to describe their elderly state at this time means at least, if not more, over 60. Sorry, they didn't know that 60 is now the new 40. Uh, but, uh, but, but that was old for this time, right? So what's he praying for? I'm not convinced Zachariah was still praying for a child. That was no doubt a difficult thing. It's still difficult when you, you go through infertility in our day. But then... When there was so much emphasis on childbearing, especially with the old covenant promise of the seed of the woman being the one who would come and defeat Satan and restore the kingdom. Oh, there was a big emphasis on childbearing. And there was social stigma if you didn't bear children. There's a beautiful lesson here. That's what we find out. This godly couple are what? They had no children, verse 7. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. You were advanced in years. And not only were they past the age of childbearing, they hadn't been able to. 
Elizabeth was childless. She wasn't able to have children. And so I actually think, probably, it doesn't specify, but I think his prayer is not just for his child, but for the salvation of God's people. I think that's what they were praying for outside. No doubt their personal concerns were were important as well, but I think it's very important to have central in our prayer lives needs beyond our own immediate needs. Like, the salvation of the world, the kind of prayer we just prayed for our missionaries. Joy and Jeremy, who are serving God to reach the world, that we move our gaze beyond ourselves and our little circumstances to the big things God's doing in the world. That doesn't mean those things are insignificant, those things in our lives. But th- I think there's, there's a mighty lesson in this passage to move our gaze from ourselves to God and what he's doing in the world. And we get fixated on our immediate circumstances. I think Zechariah is praying for the salvation of his people. Maybe he's praying for both. Maybe he's still awaiting a miracle. But he's stunned by this. He doesn't seem to be praying in faith for a child anymore. By the way, this thing goes down. And so they have faith. If you you see the way Zechariah, once he's able to trust God and move back to that state and worship and praise God if you you read and I hope you do later Zechariah's worshipful prophecy you will see that he was resting in God's promises he got to that point as we'll see and he had joy and I was thinking for the first time this week that this elderly couple unlike Mary in, in some ways Mary's situation was more impossible than Zechariah and Elizabeth's if you think about it. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are barren their whole lives, unable to have children, and now past the, the age of childbearing anyway, and God says, I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to do a miracle, and I'm going to give you a son. He comes to Mary, Gabriel does, names the child the one who saves after naming John, Gabriel, same angel, God is gracious. And he, he says, I, you're going to be with child, and you're 14, 15 maybe, and you're a virgin. That's even more of a miracle than Elizabeth. This is just amazing what God's doing. And he's moving into the lives of these ordinary people who are unimpressive in the world, but who are walking with God in simple ways. And he says, I am going to use you to do great things, to do actually the greatest thing ever. It's a beautiful picture we get of this dear couple. I love their ability, as we'll see in the passages to come, to rejoice and hope and be confident. When you think that, unlike Mary and and, um, her ability to see her son grow into adulthood, it's highly unlikely that Elizabeth and Zechariah got to see John the Baptist be that wild man in the wilderness. They probably would have been over a hundred by that time and, and had both died when John is out in the wilderness wearing camel's hair and a leather belt eating locusts and wild honey. I can't imagine parents could have been completely fine with that picture of their son's chosen vocation, chosen by God. But they weren't there to hear him say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus showed up, and saying, I'm not fit to untie your sandals. 
I, you should be baptizing me. And oh, Jesus has John baptized him. They weren't there to see that all happen. And they also weren't there to see him beheaded by the same dark leaders of the time then too. But they had hope. Even though they didn't have sight, they didn't have the evidence from their circumstances and their immediate environment. They had hope in God, which is what we are being called to every day of our lives. It's important to realize, isn't it, that in spite of the social stigma people have had, I wonder if there's sin in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, they haven't been able to have children, that that can't be good, God must not be happy with them, that horrible way of thinking that the prosperity preachers preach all the time these days. That isn't true at all, biblically. is clearly not true here. Like for Job, their suffering, their lack, was not because of sin in their lives, but because God had a beautiful plan He was working out that included that suffering. The righteous do suffer. And God's always at work. Always orchestrating his perfect plan of redemption as he weaves the miraculous into the mundane. And it happens on an amazing day in Zechariah's life. Zechariah is a priest. And priests would only serve once in a while. Actually, typically, they would just be called twice a year to go serve for two weeks in the temple. There were about, we're told, 20,000 priests at this time. And so there was a massive rotation of going to do your priestly duties. And Zechariah is there for the, the wonderful opportunity and privilege to serve God by offering sacrifices. And out of the 20,000 priests, they would by lot determine which of those priests would get to go into the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place right next to that. An awesome privilege. And a lot falls on Zechariah. And he goes, he gets to be the one. Now, he couldn't text Elizabeth and say, guess what? So he he no doubt was saying, I can't wait to get home and tell Elizabeth that I was chosen. I never thought it would happen in my lifetime. And he goes in, first with two attendants, and then they leave him behind. And he goes in and he takes the incense and, and, and is going to offer it. And this wonderful once-in-a-lifetime, not just day, but moment. And then God takes this once-in-a-lifetime, can't believe he gets to do this moment, and cranks it through the roof beyond his wildest imagination. The angel, Gabriel, shows up in this moment. And we're told he's afraid, which is always what happens when angels show up. In the Bible, it's amazing what distorted pictures we get of angels in our day. Like these chubby babies, perish the thought. This cute little fairy-like person on your lapel, get get rid of it. it. It has nothing to do with this biblical picture where when you saw an angel, you got on the ground. This messenger of God. Angels, the thing they need to say all the time is, fear not, you can get up. Precious moments, angels would never have to say that. So we're told he fears, right? He fears. That's his right response. Uh, Verse 12, fear fell upon him. And the angel said, don't be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Do you realize what just happened? And then he tells him that this 
son of his, would be the one who would prepare the way like Elijah did. But now he would be, as Jesus said, the greatest among women because he was the last of the old covenant prophets who was the last one to prepare the way. And he's the one who finally inaugurates the Messiah's entrance, the Emmanuel, God with us, arrival of God. The big day appeared. It's as if, if you're a baseball fan or a Dodger fan or whatever kind of fan you are, just imagine your team, or if you're an Astros fan, I met one last service, gloating, walking around here uh, from Texas. But imagine if someone said to you, here is a ticket for the seventh game of the World Series to go see the Dodgers play. Yes, and you get to go. You've been dreaming of this since you were a child, like Zechariah no doubt would have, that maybe, maybe there was a slim chance he could go in and offer the incense. And when you finally get entrance into Dodger Stadium, the person taking your ticket says, oh, sir, this isn't just entrance into the stadium for Game 7 of the World Series. This is entrance into being on the team. Here is a uniform, head to the dugout, not the bleacher seat, not, not the nosebleed seats, head to the dugout, and actually, as I look at the lineup, you're starting at third base. You start stretching, right? And, and, and before you know it, you're there. That's what the angel's saying. I mean, that is, that's exciting on our level, but that's nothing compared to what just went down here. God's people have been waiting millennia for God to arrive and bring his kingdom once and for all and stop all the pain and the suffering and the sin. And uh, Zechariah is told, not only do you get to see this happen, you get to be a vital part of it because you and Elizabeth will miraculously have a son and he will be the one who brings us to the conclusion of the Old Testament prophetic voice and brings the Messiah. You get to be on the field. You get to be on the team. You get to be used by God in this powerful way. This humble man who does not actually respond very well in the moment, if you noticed. Right? There's a fascinating contrast here between Abraham and Zechariah. Abraham, very similar circumstances if you've been paying attention in our Genesis series. Elderly couple, promised to have a child. Child doesn't arrive. They're past the, the age of this being even possible. And God says you're going to have this child. And listen to the way Abraham's faith is described. He did not weaken in faith when he considers his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100 it's not very sensitive, as good as dead. Um, and, and because he was 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. But the fact is, Zechariah did waver. He wavered so much that God rebukes him. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. Do you ever notice how old men talk about being old men all the time? I'm starting to do that myself. Well, back in my day, we didn't even have water bottles. <laughs> Drink out of this hose. I'm an old man. Listen to me, right? Um, 
Or they, there's, yeah, they know better than you. Or I'm an old man. What do you want from me? But here he is. I'm an old man, and so is my wife. What do you want from me? I, I can't believe this. How shall I know this? Now you may be saying, what's wrong with that? This is a good question. No, if you pay attention, it's how will I know this? That's different than Mary's question. Will she? We'll see where she says, how can this be? This is a big difference between. I need more evidence. I think that's what Zechariah is saying. Okay, Gabriel shows up here after 400 years of prophetic silence here in the holy place offering incense, and I I need a little more evidence. And God's not happy with his response. It's a stunning rebuke. The angel answered him, oh, here's more evidence. No, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that those things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. That's amazing. He rebukes him. And we need to know that there is a very good and healthy and even necessary place for doubt and questions and struggling and wondering and wrestling. But there's also a point where all of that becomes hard-heartedness, and a faithlessness that God lovingly rebukes and God's people lovingly rebuke as well, or at least we should. And that's what's happening here, a rebuke for a faithlessness. He wants more evidence. He can't be sure. Mary wants to understand how. He's not at the point of believing it's going to happen yet. Doubt can be a faithlessness. There can be an evil to it. Jesus actually rebukes that very sort of thing in Matthew 16. Listen to this. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, so they asked him to show them a miraculous sign from heaven. He responded, in the evening you say that the weather will be fine because the sky is red. In the morning you say there's a storm today. You can forecast the weather by judging the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Evil and unfaithful people look for miraculous signs, but the only sign that will be given is that of Jonah. And then he left them standing there and went away. He knew their hearts, and he knew that what was going on there was not a good, earnest, honest, seeking for truth and growing faith. Lord, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief sort of thing. But um, I don't think so. And so he's rebuked by it. But what I love about this and find so encouraging is that Zechariah is a righteous man. He falters here, and then we get nothing but a righteous picture after that. Sometimes our right living before God, our faithful living before God, includes need for rebuke. It includes failing and faltering. But that's not the whole story. The whole story is told by faith God brings to us in him. And so we are getting a Mary Zechariah con- contrasting picture here when you read the whole story. And there can be a spirit of, of curiosity or skepticism or cynicism that's not pleasing to God at all. And it's very different than honest questioning and doubting and struggling. And we need to discern the difference. And the best way to do that is among the people of God, not all by yourself. And so we get to this point where, where Zechariah realizes that he is going to be the father of that prophet the prophets told would come who would be like Elijah and he would bring in the Messiah. God's Emmanuel, God with us, God for us. This is an amazing thing. To get to the point where we realize nothing is impossible with God. And what, listen, listen, 
to what John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, ushers in. Listen to this description beginning in verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, which is the only kind of greatness that really matters before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He won't be distracted or deterred from leading with a clarity that the Spirit enables, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared." Oh, that beautiful picture. I don't think that's primarily talking about families getting along, children lo- uh, uh, fathers loving their children well, children loving their fathers well. I think that's about new covenant realities, quoting right from Malachi 4, talking about what God will usher in when there will be harmony, a turning back to the faith of our fathers and our, our faithful fathers turning to us, pointing us to the faithful God. That's what's happening here, an awesome gladness and joy and hope and celebration and wisdom and justice. It's coming, and it's coming through Jesus, and John prepares the way. I was reading this thinking about how consumeristic and entitled and, and uh, those, these mentalities we can have in our day, and I thought, how many people would be in a place of Zechariah and hear that your son who's coming will be great before the Lord, and you're thinking, he'll be the Messiah, won't he? Is he going to be the Messiah? No, no, he'll, the, he'll be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. Oh, really? <laughs> really, just, just preparing the way? I know, joy, gladness, wisdom, justice, yes, but can he be the best, the ultimate? No. <laughs> see, when we see ourselves as part of something bigger than ourselves, it puts everything in perspective. And our greatest joy comes not from having our immediate little puny lives made how we want them to be, but realizing that God is always powerful and present and providing in the midst of everyday life and occasionally through powerful, miraculous means, but usually working out his plan every day in our lives. And when we realize that Jesus is the one John prepared the way for, that he comes and he indeed takes away the sins of the world. And when we turn from sin to his righteousness, when we turn from self to Christ, when we say with John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase, that's when we are positioned to be used beautifully by God. Do you have any idea how much God can and wants to use you? Not because the world thinks you're all that but because God uses vessels that yield themselves to his work. And the reason we are useful to God is because we trust his faithfulness. And we see that faithfulness in keeping his promise that he would one day join with his people through his anointed Messiah. And that's exactly what he does. So John baptizes Jesus and he goes off into the wilderness He's tempted by the devil and he overcomes that temptation for us and then does that every day of his life for us and then he dies a perfect death on a cross in our place and rises from the grave and conquers death and hell once and for all. 
That's who we follow, Jesus. And our faith is in God because he's faithful. And his greatest display of faithfulness is sending his son in our place. Lord, help us to trust you and your promises. Ultimately, your character. Help us to believe that you can and want to use our lives, which can seem so meager and insufficient and frail, but in the hands of a God who's powerful and present and providing, we can be used greatly by you. So help us to rest in you and your finished work in your Son, and help us to seek to be used by you in your way, in your timing, bearing fruit of righteousness in our lives. Because of Jesus, we pray. Amen.